You're listening to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. The Show on the Road is brought to you by Nomad. Our friends up in Santa Barbara make the most epically good-looking accessories, cases, battery packs, and cords with handcrafted leather and Kevlar material. It'll make you look way cooler than you actually are. Why do you think I'm using one of their battery packs all day? I'm not good with time management, and it keeps my phone charged so I can read this amazing text to you right now. And don't forget to put BGS in the discount code. This week on the show, my conversation with two legends and innovators who have brought the humble banjo across four continents and have won over 17 Grammys between them in the process. I'm talking, of course, of Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. For over three decades now, Bela has quietly revolutionized how the banjo is played, recorded, and perceived, taking it from the front porches of Appalachia into jazz clubs, symphony halls, and rock stadiums from his hometown of New York City to Uganda, Tibet, and back again. Meanwhile, Abigail has forged her own unique path. A fiercely intelligent songwriter and activist, fluent in Mandarin, it's been told she gave up being a well-regarded lawyer in China after a meditation retreat brought her to the realization that the banjo and not the briefcase was her destiny. You may ask, where would a lonely banjo master meet the banjo-playing girl of his dreams? At a square dance in Nashville, of course, and yes, that's true. Finally, they came together and their banjo explorations became one. They began touring and recording together, and I finally caught up with them on a rainy Wednesday at the UCLA campus here in LA. If you hear some commotion in the background, it's probably their five-year-old Juno, who wanted to demonstrate his paper airplane piloting skills just off the mic. Okay, here they are, Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. So I was, I was, I was saying to your better half, do people still say that, um, that... They usually say that. They usually yeah. say it about to me. me. Yeah, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. There's so much to cover with you guys <laughs> because you both have such rich history in your own music and then a couple albums together. So I'm going to kind of dance back and forth because I've been fans of you guys individually and now it's much more handy that you're together. You know? Thank you. Thanks, Zach. And I saw you at McCabe's probably five years ago. Oh, yeah. You know? That place is Love super, McCabe's. super sweet. You must be there a lot. I, I live down the street. So you it's, do? Oh, that's it's very convenient. handy. I would be there yeah. all the time. I was there in, uh, I guess, the early 80s with Newgrass Revival. We did a few nights there. Really? I think yeah. you played there with the Sparrow Quartet, too. Did we I we played so. there with Sparrow? I think we did. Wow. Yeah. I mm-hmm. forgot about that. Mm-hmm. I, it's a long-standing frustration that there's no real music venues on the west side of L.A. Oh, it's all downtown or east side where all the hip people oh, are. But somehow, us beach city people, we just have one little guitar shop. It's a cool place, though. There's a lot of history, a lot of great music been played in that joint. Do they still work on guitars? Oh, yeah. All right. They repair my guitar. I'm going. I love, I love how <laughs> when you're getting ready for the show and you're doing sound check and stuff, they're, they're like moving all of the, all of the, like, the uh, chairs. The yeah, merchandise yeah. out of the way, all yeah. these rolling. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. I like everything's actually on a rolling cart, and you don't know that until you're doing sound check and watch everything like move out of the room. Is there a favorite venue that you guys like playing together? In general? Yeah. The Astrodome, probably. <laughs> <is> my favorite. <laughs> it's an intimate experience yeah. on the AstroTurf. <laughs> you know, I, I like playing all kinds of gigs, and but we we did a house concert the other day. I love house concerts with no amplification, and, yeah. and I love big gigs if, if the audience is into it. It's all about the audience for me. But I think mm-hmm. the main thing for me, selfishly, is the way it sounds from the stage has a big impact on how much fun I have. And if it's a place that allows you to hear each other really well and then feel the room, feel the space, and feel the audience, then I like it. A lot of different, there's a lot of different good places to play. Yeah. The banjo is uniquely suited to unamplified rooms because it has its own little amplifier in it almost. Yeah. Yeah. But like for instance, there are gigs where it's a real ringy room, like a churchy kind of thing or a big open room. And I love those for for me because I hit my note and it goes plink and then it comes back, ah, and it has all the sustain and ring. That is so beautiful. That's not going to happen again. (laughs) (laughs) But um, my sound man, Richard, he could say, ah, I hated this place. It was so ringy. And I'm like, ah, it sounded so great from the stage. So, but for me, it made me play better because of how it sounded to me. So, yeah, that's, that's the selfish side of it. I don't really know what it sounds like out there unless I go see someone else play. The uh, when you have an eight-piece band like I have, oh yeah, the people on the far right, like our trombone player, well, after the show is like, 
I don't think we should ever play here again. It sounded terrible. Mm -hmm. And then in the center, I was like, this sounded great for yeah. me. Right. I yeah, know. yeah. No, I loved happens. it. It really happened. It yeah. is so interesting yeah. how, you know, two people on the same stage, even just a duo, one side will sound so different from the other. Mm -hmm. Before we go forward, I saw on Wikipedia, who knows if this is correct, were you actually born in Evanston? I was. So am I. Dude. Evanston Can you Evanston hear the fist Boom. <laughs> you heard that? Yeah. I feel like Evanstonians are like, they spread out across the world, mm -hmm. and there's way more of us than there should be. You think so? Yeah, like, like there's I, too many of us. No, but like I find really cool people <laughs> everywhere. Oh, I see what you like, mean. Like okay. this one specific suburb yeah, I know, of I Chicago. I love Evanston so much. How long are you it's there? It's one place I'd move to. Um, I was oh, till I was three, mm. and I was born at St. Francis Hospital on the Welcome Mat, and I was called Welcome Mat Abbey for the first year of my life. And then, and then it was changed up. And then it got shifted, yeah. I guess, you know, people forget things. They move <laughs> on. I forgot I was born on a welcome mat. It wasn't that big of a deal anymore. The funny thing, when you read about you guys, there's things that people obviously say that is super corny, you know, like that your children are going to be like the banjo emperors of the future, you know. Is, is Juno going to stick with the drums or is he going to switch oh, it up? good question, good question. I think Juno's going to do what Juno needs to do, and we're going to find out what that is. Unless he wants to go to college and have it paid for, in which case <laughs> he's, he's going to learn banjo. to play the banjo. <laughs> are there banjo scholarships? Uh, well, actually, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of schools. Uh, in fact, um, Berkeley now has a banjo seat, and um, um, South Plains College in Texas, and then uh, uh, there's one in uh, East Tennessee. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah, there's a few that where you could you could study banjo, but no, it's, it depends what he's into. You know. Right now, he's flying a paper airplane against the wall. Yeah, and he it's one that he fashioned entirely himself. So, so what? Yeah. <laughs> it's got a pretty epic hairdo going. It does. It's just it's natural. It comes natural. So you but, guys yeah. also he loves to golf. Actually, that's a really oh, big golf. thing for yeah, he's him. Strong. Oh, he's strong. He's a strong golfer. He's won. Uh, I say he was won two tournaments. His, his second and third tournaments. The, the, the second, third tournament, which he 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 shot the same. It was actually a tie between the three people that that, that won it. But the way but they he scored, got that best costume because yeah. it was the Halloween tournament. Halloween. Yeah. Where are you guys based now? Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. How are you liking that? Gosh, it's been a long time for both of us. Much longer for you, though. You've been there 35 years? Yeah, I've watched it change. I got there in, in, in 81 when I joined Newgrass Revival. And then I waited patiently for Abigail to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> and then there she was at the square dance. That's there she was. Right. It really good. happened. That's right. And I've, I've been there for 15 years, 16 maybe. So, um, yeah, no, but it's changing drastically right now. It kind of went from feeling like a... A small town to this. It just feels a little bit like bustling. LA South almost. A little yeah. bit. It's super hip. It's a little mm -hmm. bit like overly chic at points. Yeah, it's out chiced itself. It's like sometimes yeah. the content doesn't quite live up to the hype. But. I think it's kind of like Atlanta used to be. People would say, well, Atlanta's a great town, but, the, but except for the traffic. And it used to be Nashville didn't have that kind of traffic, and now it does, and everything is just—it's just a pain in the ass to get anywhere nowadays. And that was—it used to be really fun, but there are a lot better restaurants, and there's a lot more wonderful musicians around. And uh, it's true, realty has obviously exploded. Um, so, um, but yeah, I think it was more fun in the old days. It was real slow and podunky in a lot of ways, wasn't it? Yeah, you yeah. come home and you didn't have trouble getting into a restaurant on a Friday night or anything yeah. like that. And there was nothing really like rush hour. There's maybe like 15 minutes around 5 o'clock. Yeah. It was a little awkward out there, but that's Not it. anymore. That's now really you different. You really mm -hmm. have to time everything now where you're going. Since you guys have started a family, you're touring... Uh, schedule and probably your the way you do it has changed, right? That's true. Well, for me, before Bela and I hooked up and started playing around the birth of Juno, I was in 10-passenger vans with bands, you know, touring around for over 10 years. And then when Bela and I started working together, we decided to go whole hog and get the bus, and Juno's grown up between a bus and our house. And Both of you guys have traveled extensively uh, in places where the banjo is maybe not as utilized or famous China and throughout the African continent. Start with you. What do you think the uh, first thing that people don't know about China that they 
should know about your travels there? Like what um, really stuck with you? Wow. I went over there for the first time a couple years ago with the band on a State Department thing. Oh, you did? And it's it's just not like anything you've sort of imagined in your mind. You Ever, know. right. Yeah. I know. Like, because there's <clears throat> the different ways people think of China, which probably ranges from, like, you know, a political, on the political front, sort of this semi-quasi-communist nation with a fairly tyrannical leader to all the way to, like, just thinking about the the cultural, I guess I could say, exoticness of it, and like the um, the ancient poetry and the calligraphy and the tea ceremonies and um, oh, they sold like us that. that tea really well. I mean, we mm-hmm. all were buying that, and tea. it's good. Yeah, <laughs> but once you step foot off the plane, I think what hits you right away is two things: the the air quality. The pollution, mm. and then the second piece is the um, n- the sheer number of people mm. in your personal vicinity, mm-hmm. and um, that's just uh, right there. You go into like a totally different sensory experience, you know, a certain kind of culture shock. But then there's all the other things that happen on top of that. Um, the layers of things like how incredible the food is, mm. um, and unlike anything I've tasted. Ever- Called since. Chinese food in America, yeah. But like, there's nothing I can even find. Even in uh, L.A., I feel like it's something so specific, like the the breakfast sort of porridge. It's like, right. where can I even look for that here? Right. You know, so good. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, and then the way people talk so loud, and you can't understand it if you don't understand it. And, and you um, speak fluent Mandarin, right? I speak well. I speak conversationally. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, yeah, and just the noise and the the cacophony of it all, you know. It's, um, Is there a certain song that tried to uh, distill that for you in some of your work, or is it impossible? Oh, like in an attempt to share it. Yeah, I wrote this. Uh, uh, I guess you could call it a play or a musical offering. The New York Public Theater with Joe's Pub was putting together a a series, they might still do it, called New York Voices. Mm. And they had four artists a year that don't write musicals. And they said, write a musical. Mm. And they said, well, how do you write a musical? And they said, we're not going to tell you. You tell us. Mm. We want to see what your approach to writing a musical is. So Mm. I wrote a musical uh, called Post-American Girl. Mm. And it's based on my experience of mm, my adulthood in China and America and the going back and forth. And uh, one one of the pieces was literally about that experience of feeling the, the, the cacophonous nature of that new sensory experience you, you get when you step off the plane into China and in, into your first couple of days or first couple of weeks, what it might feel like. And it's like, it was a combination of strings playing sort of beautiful hints of Chinese and American melodies mixed with like um, a Chinese percussionist who was playing all the opera mm. percussion. So, you know, you know, you know that sound. So yeah, that 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 was my attempt to bring it all together, and then sort of reciting um, all the things that were uh, making it feel like an overwhelming experience the first time I was there. And you teamed up with was it Wu Fei? Is that the Wu Fei? Wu Fei, the mm-hmm. uh, zither player. Gu Zheng. Mm-hmm. Did you learn how to play that? No, 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 no. That, leave that up to her. She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I play the banjo. She plays the Gu Zheng. Bela's producing our record. Um, We've recorded all of the tracks, and we're going to mix it this winter and release it next year. And then your travels through Africa, uh, the Throw Down Your Heart project, um, what, what is the thing that people who are afraid of traveling through Uganda and, and these different places should know? That you... um, I think they're right to be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh... At certain points, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I was scared a bunch of times on that trip. In fact, I wouldn't do that trip now. Mm. But this, um, there was, you know, rogue um, army type things, you know, and, and things going on in Uganda when I was there. There was, um, well, look what's happened to Mali since I was there. A lot of the places I, would, I wouldn't be able to go. As a parent, I wouldn't take the risk. Mm. For the good of my family, I wouldn't do it. But um, it's really something else to be there and experience it. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That, that opportunity of, of interacting with people. I always think it's the best when you go to another country 
um, if you can actually live with the people from there and not just go to a hotel. Although usually, you know, the better you're doing as a musician, <clears throat> the more you end up staying in a nice hotel when you go to a foreign country to play. And you really miss out on a lot of the, on a lot of the personality of the place. Um, but you kind of need to because you're playing in there for two days or a day and boom, you're onto the next town. You've got to protect yourself from um, getting exhausted and getting or too the, tired to perform. Yeah, simply the other variables that can come in if you don't know. Yeah. Okay, here's bus, hotel, next town. You might miss your show, you might, yeah, there's so Anything much. could happen, so, could so happen. you stay in a hotel. But um, when I was in Africa, it was a lot, a lot of camping out, you know, near where I was, was and, and, um, and a lot of very personal time with, with, with people in their homes and recording in their homes, you know, just throwing up some mics like we're doing right here, but, but in someone's home and then them cooking for us. They're, you know, they obviously were putting on the dog for us, making some great food, but it was, we all ate out of the same bowl with our, with our fingers. And it was the things like that that I remember. And you recorded in some pretty uh, unique spaces, like a, it was like a cook hut in, in different places, yeah. right? Oh yeah, and that was just, that was just so cool. It was just like, yeah, you can play these instruments anywhere. You just look for a space that feels real and natural. And we also recorded outdoors a lot, which I've never done for, for an album before, like record out in a field with a bunch of SM58s and 57s, and it sounds great without any walls. Usually mm -hmm. you're thinking about what kind of room you're in, as you and I were talking about earlier. I guess we were all talking about it, right? Um, this, the, the way a, a different room impacts your playing. Well, when you're outdoors, there's no walls for it to bounce off, but something very pure starts to come into it if you're really listening. Without those walls, I think the beauty of acoustic music in general is that it's something that can be expanded, but also can sound perfect raw. You know, yeah, just me and you playing under the stars. That yeah. almost can be its greatest Evolution. example yeah. of the sound. When you, you think know? about banjos, they're really made for a small, like for a small room, unamplified. They're they're perfect for um, you know thirty people. And no more, you know. And then you get into larger spaces, and you have to start amplifying. Then you start amplifying with the mic. Get the Astrodome. You know. Right, the Astrodome. But but then eventually, yeah, you can put a pickup on it, and and it can work quite well in, in a really large space because it has that clear front end bell tone. Where if you're playing certain other instruments in those spaces, it's going to be a lot harder for for that mm -hmm. for those pitches to make it all the way to the audience, mm -hmm. and it just becomes a blurry thing. But the banjos do actually handle that quite well. It actually makes me think of just the combination of the three finger and the call hammer playing and how um, it's a little tangential, but just the way that uh, that can sound like a real messy train wreck if you don't work really hard on it like we do to find the space in between the 16th notes and have them match up and find each other. It's been a really uh, challenging journey in the sense of trying to find a way to make that sound pleasing to the ear. Yeah. I think it sounded good right away, but then we started to realize that there were certain times it sounded better than others, and we started trying to figure out why. And it seemed, at first it seemed like, hey, anything seemed to work, but as our perception got more focused on what we were doing, we realized that when we were really together, really locked in, like in a profound way, like eyeball to eyeball, and really focusing on every, every single the ripple. The old eyeball lock, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it, it went to another place, and the music worked in a whole different way, and it was worth the difference. Now, now, if you weren't listening that closely, it might not sound that different than if we weren't really concentrating as hard on each other, um, but um, it really makes a difference. So we still work on it all the time. We, we work do. On our, that's the, the principal effort we make as a duo, is working on our timing and making sure things are feeling and flowing the right way. Bela and I play so differently <clears throat> in terms of the way, like, for example, people will say, oh, just practice to a metronome. Well, different people hear a metronome really differently. Mm. So when I hear a metronome, I'm trying to lock my downbeats right on, right on what I'm hearing is the, the sound of the, the tone of the, the click. Whereas Bela's trying to make the click follow him, or you're trying to lead the click, right? Well, I, I want it to feel like we're equal musicians, like the metronome and I are equals, not... Not like, not like the metronome's telling you what to do. Not like I'm following the metronome. Or sometimes it feels like the metronome is trying to punish you. Right. Like if you mess up <laughs> well, at any certainly. point, you're like, nope, mm -hmm. you're off yeah. again. It does that. Yeah, I mean, you have to develop a relationship with, with the metronome um, where, you, where you're friends, and, and you're not, you don't get mad at each other when you disagree a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I mean, because you can freak out because you got a little bit off the click, but the truth is 
We used to make records in the 80s and everybody started turn, you, you know, using a click track um, at a certain point. And you'd play and, and you'd be amazed because while you were playing it felt so awful. Um, uh, uh, everyone would say, why, why are we we're dragging or we're pushing or it's like, you know, so we're not right with the click. And then you'd go back and listen to the take in the, in the studio uh, in the control room afterwards and it would sound amazing because we all slowed down and pushed together against the click but we all had that reference. And these really great studio musicians that did that every day, you know, for for years, they knew how to relax against the click and not freak out if it was, you know, they knew they could pull it back up at the next instrumental, they could get back with the click, or they could pull it back for the verses. They knew how to really listen to that click in a profound way, mm, and not just try to be, you know, metri metric with it, metronomic yeah. with it. Although um, it's yeah, you just figure out your strategy. It is helpful. I mean, like just even yesterday, we were playing a tune that we've played hundreds of times to it and the information gathering you can do from hearing yourself play with a click is so helpful. Like we could sit there all day long without the click and I could say, you're rushing there. And he could say, you're, you're dragging, you know? But once you actually sit down with the click, you can figure out what is it we're doing. Mm -hmm. And usually it's, it's some of everything. It's know? more profound than you'd expect too. Like when, we, when we've been um, playing a song live for a while off of the click without a click, we discover that there's six or seven different tempos in the right. thing, but we're doing it all together. together right. And to me, the, the thing that makes music great is the sound of people listening to each other really well. So I think the metronome should be used as a way to learn to listen better, mm. but not as a rule that, that you have to play it like a metronome. Mm. Flatten Scruggs, they always sped up for the solos, they slowed down for the choruses, they sped back up. All that push and pull is part of what made it so good. So I'm not advocating you know, it can also be a peacemaker, though, if you're yeah. if you're in disagreement about something. Right. You you, yeah. you you get real humble when you start when you turn yeah. on the metronome. You, you don't say, "Oh well, I know," and because pretty soon you say, "Well, here's where it is," and you're rushing. Oh, yeah. I was wrong. Oops. Yeah. Sorry, I was so sure of myself. <laughs> but there's a song, uh, "Banjo Banjo," on the self-titled record that has this really intricate echoing between right. you guys. That it's an instrumental track, but it sounds like a conversation that's happening. Um, do you guys find that? you guys can communicate just through your instruments to each other? Oh, you mean our love? <laughs> <laughs> we can sure. celebrate our, our love. <laughs> or, 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 uh, or if you're really pissed off. Well, I mean, if you're not, you can, you can tell if somebody's not focused. Unbridled rage. Yeah, let's see, where's the rage? Um, I think, you know, like a lot of our pieces are pretty set. Like, so we're gonna play them the same way, supposedly. But what really happens is every time you play them, they're different. And I, I might take more liberties with the notes, but I, but it's it's um, I guess being around classical music where every note is written and yet every version of a song can, can be completely different. Um, I think of it more like that. So the kind of conversation that we have musically is like we're feeling each other's rhythm constantly. We're constantly checking in with each other. We're um, we might not be looking at each other, but uh, every single note is registering. Everything is th so. There's this sort of real focus that we have while we're playing. And then there's also this caring of about what the other person, you know, what I myself want, but also what Bela wants for his banjo playing or for his artistry. And a lot of choosing pieces or writing pieces has to do with what are the challenges both of us want to have in our playing, what are the uh, goals we're going for in our music in general. And so a lot of that comes to life in um, what we choose to play. And Banjo Banjo was a fun one because it was, we wanted to create um, this up and down the neck that sounded like something one banjo could play itself, but actually we're, we're sharing, sharing the walk up and the walk down, passing it off back and forth. And that, that's been, that been fun. Which is a lot like, gospel, like a gospel uh, quartet where there's a guy going, Glory, 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 glory. You know, it's, it's, it's really just one line. Would you do that again, please? Uh, never. But uh, you know what I mean? You hear that all the time in, in, in bluegrass gospel or something. They'll suddenly stop and a high voice will hit and a low voice will hit and they'll trade back and forth. And really, it's a part one person could play. It's, it's, it's not simultaneous playing. It's, it's, right. it's alternating. So it was, I thought there was a lot of inspiration for that in Banjo Banjo. What is the moment for each of you where you really felt like a rock star mm -hmm. with a banjo. Because sometimes <laughs> those two things are not in the same sentence, but there's moments where even with your acoustic instrument, you feel like that same level of rock yeah. stardom. You remember a moment that reminded you of that? 
I do have this memory of, of opening for the Grateful Dead. It was the la it was the final show of, in Newgrass Revival, and Newgrass Revival really had a rock energy. Like when we we performed, so being in that band was like being a rock star for the first time for me. But um, but um, when we play, we open for the Dead, our final concert uh, in Oakland Coliseum on New Year's Eve. And I looked at this huge place, and it wasn't as bizarre to me as I thought it was going to be to be playing in this big space. And I thought, I bet I'm going to be in these places again. This isn't the only time I bet I'm going to be in a room this size, which was presumptuous of me, but it ended up being true because I was there again a couple of years later opening with the Flectones uh, for, for the Dead. And then all these shows with Dave Matthews where hey, I got to go on stage with Dave Matthews when they did their first solo um, you know, stadium tour, mm. uh, and they brought me out. I think they were nervous. They wanted some some reinforcements for that. For they didn't need anybody. Everyone yeah. was there, and I got to walk on stage with them um, at Foxborough and uh, uh, Yankee Stadium wow. uh, as they walked on stage to start the show. And I felt like I was in the Beatles or U2. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it wasn't for me, but I, I got to have that experience of walking down the the gangplank towards the stage with the you know with uh, 60,000 people. How does the, how does the banjo up. sound plugged in at Yankee Stadium? You know, the, that band has always made room for me. They, they uh, like, it depends who you're playing with, but when, when I play with those guys, they, they, the banjo works like crazy in that band, and and they would always be, I would always like play a little solo, and I'd be like, okay, I'm getting back there. No, 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 and they would they really like to get into it. They were like, no, play a solo. And so it could be three, four, five minute banjo solo on, on some of those songs, and they would be encouraging me to keep going which is pretty wild, you know, um, for, for, for them to do that. And they would do that with a lot of people that would sit in with them. That was, that's the way they go about it. And then they're getting some fresh inspiration from having somebody up there with them, pushing the band into a different place. But boy, it was such a treat and such, a, you know, such a, an honor. And boy, they, they were cooking, you know, playing with Carter. And Dave's guitar playing uh, is underrated by some people, but he's, he's a big, big part of the rhythm of that, that band with all of them. What about your rock star moment? Uh. Uh -huh. <laughs> what, do you think you know? I, I think I know. What do you think it is? For the Queen of England. Oh, that was pretty rock. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't very rock, though. Well, it, it, it was it was star stardom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's a good point. I was gonna say, um, going on tour in China, I've played a lot of like clubs and theaters and stuff like that, and I got to go over there with a five-piece band, and we ended up playing a rock club in a little town called well, a big town. Called Chengdu. They're little. They're little towns you know, of like fifteen 14 million. million. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, I was playing this little rock club called the Little Bar in Chengdu with this five-piece band, and just the people who came out were so excited, just kind of screaming like the Beatles or something like that, you know. And I was makes you feel kind of good, doesn't yeah, it? It felt amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty exciting. And then um, opening opening for Mumford and Sons, they they there were. A lot of people, they're really excited about whoever they had opening for them and then getting to go out on their encore at the end of the night and seeing that crowd was that? just going nuts. They had a um, Gentleman of the Road tour. Oh, right, yeah. We were on that tour. Well, well, on just on one, two dates. But the, the Queen of England was pretty great. So I went over there and I played dueling banjos, but with a, a fiddler. Classical. Named, and he's not a fiddler. He's a classical violinist named David Garrett. And we got to play dueling banjos while... Um, we did the American portion, the Americas. So for her, for her big 60th, um, no, her Silver Jubilee, I think it was called. Diamond. Diamond right. Jubilee. Mm -hmm. um, she wanted to have lots of uh, horseback riding traditions from around the world. So while all the, girl, the cowgirls from Montana were circling and doing like stagecoaches and doing tricks on their horses and all this the cowboy stuff. Yeah, at Windsor mm. uh, Palace at the, uh, the horse... Um, Stadium, I guess it is, at Windsor Palace. And I was on stage playing ban dueling banjos with David Garrett while the Montana Cowgirls were doing their thing. And at the end, um, the Queen of England stood up and cheered. And I got to meet her as well. And when I met her, she said, she went down the line and she asked, it, it, she had a little advisor there with her telling her each person's name as she met them. And the advisor said my name and said that I played the banjo. And she said, banjo? I love the banjo. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty good. And then you guys hung out and were besties. Yeah, we, we hung hard. <laughs> they put us in in China. They put us in a basketball stadium Isn't at that one of the colleges, fun? and it was like, how are they going to fill this place? We were like super embarrassed. We're like, this is going to be super awkward. Right. Like no right. one, we've never been here. Right. And like, 
they bust the people in. Like yeah. you don't have to yeah. worry about the crowds. Right. Yes. And it was crazy. Yes. Yeah. You know, because a lot of these kids had never seen definitely a horn section you know, right. or like a, a soul yeah. kind of yeah. thing going on. So yeah. they had to kind of look to their uh, teachers or sort of handlers, like, is was is it okay if we, we rock right, out? Right, right, you know? yeah. right. Like they had to kind of get permission to like yeah. really be excited. Is it okay? Yeah. You we know? Something Bill like and I have gotten to do that in, a bunch. Was it in Tibet? Tibet, yeah. we got to play Tibet the High animal, School. Uh, the, well, uh, oh, animal the Animal Husbandry, husbandry College, College of Linger. Yeah. yeah, and it was the most bizarre thing because, um, you know, of course, everyone knows what's going on in Tibet, and we were there with the Chinese government and the American government. So the Sparrow? Mm-hmm. Sparrow okay, Quartet, yeah. 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 And so we walked in, yes, full house of kids going crazy, um, but they wouldn't let us um, talk to them. So at the end of the show... Um, they kept us on the stage, and then they filed them out one at a time till, so that there was no chance for us to actually talk to interact, to, to yeah. interact with them. And so that was sad, you know. But we we, we had a good time. We had, they had such a great time at the show. Did you have this experience where they cheered in the weirdest places? Like in the middle of a song when, like, nothing particular had happened or anything? And then they wouldn't know when the song was, was over. over. Right. Yeah. And we had to kind of cue them, like... It's okay. <laughs> Here we go. Mm-hmm. Everyone's clapping. <laughs> we had that experience um, playing in Banda Aceh in Indonesia with uh, the Flectones. And we, when we would we'd be playing something really good, somebody would really be getting into it, playing some great stuff, they'd go crazy. And then we'd stop. And so they, they'd stop. Mm-hmm. So when the song stopped, they stopped applauding because they thought they were supposed to respond when they were responding when to were something good, not to us not doing anything. Yeah, right. Why should we applaud? They stopped playing. Exactly. There's yeah. a couple titles of your Flectones records that I love. Oh, the yeah. Flight of the Cosmic Hippo oh, yeah. and then UFO Tofu. Mm. <laughs> if, if you guys had to make a album title based on something crazy that your son Juno has said, Ooh. what would it be? Ripping Torture. Mm. Remember that? We asked him what, what Bela should name uh, his different movements of his concerto. Right. And the first movement was ripping torture. <laughs> what was the second one? Uh, pretending to be good. Yeah, and then the third <laughs> one was like more torture or something like that. <laughs> Throwing shade at dad. <laughs> no, he comes up with the best names for things. Instantaneously. I, uh, I really dug the Echo in the Valley record. Um, Thank you. And the, the song Let It Go. Um, I'm curious, this is part about sorrow dancing circles around the heart, and I think it's, it feels like when you see the news and, and everything going on in the world, that songwriting is so much more, um, it's so much more hard to ignore it right now, you know? And it's not like we're all writing protest songs all the time, but I'm curious how you, um, when you start a song lyrically, do you take what you're seeing around you and want to distill it, or is it something that comes from more of a basic, an idea, you know, like a rocket flying through the air, and then that's the song. It's nothing to do with what you read in the news today. Or is it, is it much harder to ignore these days? Well, this album definitely... Uh, Echo in the Valley has a lot of reaction to what was going on around us, more, more so than, way more so than the first record. And we really wrote this album together. Uh, most most of the songs were, were written together, lyrics and, and music and everything. And um, but, but you know, we didn't want to be like, uh, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a protest record. You know, it was just we just didn't want to ignore what was happening all around us. We wanted it to be a product of the times we lived in. And I, I think a good record is. Some people say it's timeless, but I think it's it's great when a, a project has a time and a place and you can attach it to that. And, and there's a lot of stuff going on that we, we want to write about. And that song actually is all about being parents and uh, the act of watching your child grow up and get more and more independent. And um, and we wrote that one about that. And having to let go of each phase that you fall in love with. You know, the baby becomes the toddler, the toddler becomes the child, the child becomes the grown child. Um, and. Uh, we, we just are so in love with our little boy, Juno. We love him so much. And he, um, we were taking him to school for the first time when we were writing that. And when we took him to school, and we, we were so used to coddling him and keeping him so close and not wanting anything to happen to him that wasn't within our control, you know. And then all of a sudden, we walk up to the door and, bye, Juno. And he runs off. 
And uh, we both were in tears writing that song, that's for sure. And then he attacks you with paper airplanes. And yeah, now he's in the attack weapons. mode. <laughs> All that sweet stuff is over now. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's what, that's what that was about. But I think I felt a new kind of responsibility on this record, and I think maybe Bela did too. We wanted to write something about Standing Rock and our a feeling about that. And, um, you know, with all the um, discussion about white privilege and white fragility, and there's a lot of thinking to be done about why we all get to end up where we are. And um, in our wanting to write about Standing Rock, there was an inclination to think, well, should we write, what perspective should we write this from? And um, I had a wonderful conversation with a woman named Christine Dupre, who's from Cowlitz and the Cree tribes from out in Oregon. And she does a lot of mediating between government and tribes, local governments and tribes, and just a lot of awareness stuff. But um, she said what's really important right now is that, that Native people need to be able to tell their own stories. No one should be telling their story for them. We should be listening for their story. Mm. And um, Right, because the temptation was to write an angry story from their point of view, which was actually would have been inappropriate. So we, we had to try to find a way to, you know, to write the song we wanted to write. With, with that story in mind, but without uh, appropriating their their anger or what we imagine their anger to be. Or their experience. It's, it's theirs to tell, and it's um, if we keep telling it, then we'll, stop, we'll keep not listening. You know? So the point is we need to listen, and um, not just listen, but really seek it out. So what we ended up writing was something just called Bloom and Rose, which was just completely from our experience and our... One of the main themes that came up as we thought about Standing Rock is just our general disassociation from nature and how um, we feel it's, a, it's really a, 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 it's, it's separate from us and we use it, we exploit it, um, but we don't really engage with it in a way that, um, that could really enrich our lives so completely and get us back on the right track with the, the environment and our own sense of self and the world and the earth. So that's what we ended up writing about. And, and this also being parents help, helps you to see different things. Like for instance, when Juno was a little little boy and he was inconsolable, all you had to take do, all you had to do is take him out of the house into the outdoors and all of a sudden he would calm down and everything yeah. would change for him. Yeah. And start, started to realize the profundity of nature's effect on human beings that we don't understand, we don't, re, we don't realize, we forget about it and we, we're in these it's almost like we've calloused ourselves to it in yeah. order to be uh, machines of industry, you know. And, right. Um, but comforts. you can see it with a baby. You know, they, as soon as they're outside, they just calm and everything is better. And that's that was a surprise for me. I, I didn't realize that till then. The song, uh, If I Could Talk to a Younger Me, also really hit me. Um, I'm curious, can you read the, uh, the words of that chorus? Yeah. If I could talk to a younger me, I'd tell me to go slow. This time on earth, it moves so fast. And when it's gone, it's gone. When it's gone, it's gone. And then there's more, but. That's the verse, though. That's the verse? What's the chorus? The feel the fear inside your chest. Feel the fear inside your chest. Watch it ebb and flow. The darkest hour dies at the dawn. First clearing's yours to reap and sow. Yeah, there's definitely, there's the elements of nature and sort of growing up and realizing as you're older, maybe that you know better, that you wish you could tell your past self something. If you could tell your 16-year-old self something right now, what would it be? Gosh, I just want to tell kids that <laughs> drugs are bad. <laughs> I mean, it's so, it's so crazy, but I mean... It's, all drugs? Yeah, well, not all, but, but uh, some of them are really, really bad, and, and they're, they're so dangerous. There's so many things you do because you're young and you're, you're, you're brave and you, don't, you, know, you want to do crazy stuff. And then, you, you know, people we know have not made it. And yeah. that, so it's, it's, or they lose what they love. They just lose what they love, and they become a slave to... To, to this substance. It's really, yeah. really sad. And it, you can't really tell in the early days, but it, once you get to be my age and Bela's age, it starts to become really clear that 
people start dropping like flies if they can't get a handle on it, you know? Well, I think humans choose their drug. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's songwriting or right. being or, in a band. Or, or sugar, it's, you know. Yeah, or, you know, it's alcohol, jumping off of, uh, you know, high buildings, you know. Yeah, well, well, choose a safe, choose one that... Choose, choose a better one, yeah, you know, choose something. than a Jump, Bungee that, jumping or something, yeah. You, you know what, what I would tell, tell, tell myself if I was that age is that you're going to, you, you have the potential to live a long time. So think about how your actions are going to impact you as you grow older. Because it would be great to feel really good in your 60s and 70s and not feel just exhausted and painful and, and suffering. I would tell my 16-year-old self that um, don't worry, you're really cool. And everybody else might not, you know, you might feel insecure and worried about the way you look and what you do. But being different is right on. Don't worry, you've got this. You know? Is it true you flunked out of French horn class? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even flunk. I didn't make it far enough to flunk. <laughs> it was a disaster. Then you joined the You know, it's, it's not too late to take up the French horn. <laughs> it's never too late to <laughs> play the French horn. And everybody keeps telling me how it's the greatest instrument of all. And I'm like, I... Who's saying that? I, I, people tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> who know? People who know tell me that. Okay. <laughs> all right, I want to do a a mind exercise. So the first thing that you think of when I say stalagmite. West Virginia. Stalactite. Beeswax. Winnie the Pooh. Tinnitus. <laughs> <laughs> End of days. Oh. Canned food. Nights. Nights. Oh, end of days. Okay, getting real literal with it. <laughs> Clever. Glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, all I can think of is 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 the movie with Matthew Matthew Broderick, <laughs> Civil War movie, Glory. <laughs> Matthew Broderick is in that. Yeah, yeah, he was in that. Yeah, he died a hero's death. Deliciousness. Oh, Juno and Theodore. Hmm. J.D. Crow's banjo tone. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the most delicious banjo tone of all? Bill Keith had a nice sound, too. There's a lot of good delicious banjo playing out there. Who do you like right now? Right now? Yeah. Um, oh, man, there's some good guys. There's Matthew Davis coming up strong in a jazzy kind of perspective. Um, Noam Pakelny is in his prime or past it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all downhill. It's man. all downhill. <laughs> Um, Would you please do, like, in the search engine, like, Noam Kelly passed his prime? We'll tell him to look that up. <laughs> There's a lot of great ones. I still love Tony Trishka like, like crazy. Um, yeah, blah, blah, blah. there's so many. How about you, Abby? Who do you like? Uh, Keep thinking. Yeah. If you could do a tour with three other bands, dead or alive, who would they be? Whoa. Um, I'd like to do something with Hookway Zawose. He's <clears throat> a great, great uh, musician from Tanzania who died before I got there mm. that I really would have loved to have played with. And, uh, and his sons are great musicians too. I got to play with them. Say the name one more time. Hookway Zawose. Mm. Or Zawose. What did he play? All these crazy instruments that he invented. Just wacky stuff. From thumb pianos to weird stringed instruments with 30 strings going in every direction. Oh, Mahalia Jackson, I would love to go mm -hmm. on tour with her. Um, George Washington Phillips, I'd like to go on tour with him. George Washington Phillips, who's that? Washington Phillips? Hmm. I'd love to see him playing that instrument. Man. Uh, well, he's asking about him, who, who he is. Oh, who he is. <laughs> Doesn't everybody know? <laughs> um, he plays, um, what is it called? Uh, oh, man. Sorry, I don't sleep very much these days because I'm a baby. Um, Harpsicola? Oh, no. Okay, I can't think of it right now, but it's a really weird harpsichordy sounding, um, almost hammered dulcimer-ish sounding instrument, and he sings these amazing gospel songs that he wrote. Mm. And uh, he's from Georgia, and he wrote First Congregation, and now um, you should definitely look it up. It's so wonderful. Juno, I think you should ask a few questions. Yeah. Or answer a few questions. Because I, I will you're, say you're it. part of the tour now. Oh so. my gosh, he is sure. so He's part of the tour. Senior tour. 
Um, I will say the hard thing about it is like there's people that you love their music, and then are you look, are you talking about somebody that you think you would play well with, or would li would like what you do, or somebody who you just want to be there to experience them in person? Because, that's sort of what I'm thinking. Because that's the yeah. hard thing about the question. Because there's there's so many. I'd love to be around the Beatles. I'd love to, but I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily need to perform with them or anything. Right, I would say right. a tour that you're playing you know. as part of the four bands on the stage. That oh, night. you're actually playing with them. Oh yeah. Oh. Like it's a tour. I wouldn't throw myself. Bela and Abby on. with. Who would we play? It'd be fun to be. Uh, it would be fun to have, like go out of time and be and be on, uh, like at Newport Folk Festival with Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and, and Judy Collins and that world of uh, you know early folk, mm. uh, Bob Dylan, mm. and be part of that whole world. I think I think we could have found our little little niche in there. It would have been neat. <laughs> yeah. Who's a famous person you've played with that's actually very down to earth? Bruce Hornsby. I mean, what kind of aim are we talking about here? Garth Brooks? Um, How's Garth? Um, he presents very well in person. He's very sweet. He's very uh, self-effacing. and um, Just don't hang out with Chris Gaines. You know, that guy's... Right, now that guy's a whole different story. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Martin. He's, just, he's been really sweet with he's us. He's so sweet, and he just is, uh, really believes in the banjo and banjo players and wants it to present world well in the world, and he's invested a lot of his time and energy into that. And that's been a really a neat thing to learn about with him. Um, Amy Tan is super fun, the, the writer. Joy Lucklum? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's a hoot. She's so cute. Oh, my gosh. She, put a, um, she does this every morning. She uh, suction cups a hummingbird feeder to her forehead. So the hummingbirds will come and check it out. Wait, what? <laughs> and she stands there with her eyes crossed looking at them. <laughs> and one day she tried to take a picture of it. I got to see her after a show I did in San Francisco a couple For months real? ago. Yeah, and she, I looked at her and she had this red dot on her forehead. And she was like, oh. And she tried to put her bangs in front of it really quick. And she said, oh, that's for my hummingbird feeder. And I said, hummingbird feeder? And she said, I like to suction cup them to my forehead so the hummingbirds will come close. <laughs> what, is, what is the strangest routine that you guys have on the road? I mean, I guess, I guess we're just so stuck with thinking we're, we're normal because we don't know if we're not. What, what do we do that's weird, Joe? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Okay. We're not very weird. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I wish we could be weird and be more interesting, but, but we're just not very weird. I think the main thing, I mean, if, if anything I can think of that's unusual is like when you have a child on the road, like when Juno... Um, was was little and we were on tour and and it would be all I could do to get Abby to get ready for the show like the the, the, the lights are down the audience is in and Abby's still on the bus with Juno trying to get him to go to sleep this is the weird thing we do and you might not think this is weird Juno but we usually uh, lay down with Juno till he falls asleep and that's hard to do on, on you know on the tour bus right before the mm. show <laughs> so it'd be like it's yeah, and then like you fall asleep uh, yeah. five minutes till showtime and Abby's not still not in the room and he's, she's trying to get Juno down um, and then uh, she walks on and she can't remember any of the songs for the first two or three times. <laughs> well, this was early on. So, yeah, this but finally we on. had to have at least a half an hour. Yeah, role. if you're sleep deprived, yeah. right? I mean, you're, you're going right on in a pretty opulent hall here at UCLA yes. tomorrow. Yes, yes. How do you psych yourself up if you're feeling that exhausted? Well, I think we've definitely learned that we, I need at least a half an hour minimum. backstage, minimum. Yeah, maybe just, 45 minutes just to get my head clear. Are you doing coffee, Red Bull, or just no, straight? I can't do any of that because it, it um, buzzes the baby. Oh, with the breastfeeding It goes through, too. for me. I know it doesn't work that way for all women, but for mm. me it does. So, uh, yeah, I can't do any of that stuff. I just got to uh, power through. Well, should, uh, should we play a song? Yeah, let's play a song. And what is this song called? Over the Divide. All right, here we go.
great. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. It really means a lot. Our pleasure. Zach, thank you for having us. We'll see you at the show. Huge thanks to Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn for taking the time to talk with me. You can check out BGS's newest podcast, The Breakdown, where hosts Emma John and Patrick McGonigal dissect classic bluegrass albums, including a recent episode all about Bela's classic 1988 release, Drive. Also, there's a really cool hanging and saying episode with the two of them. Check it out. They're touring all over the West Coast. Get a ticket. I went the other night. It was magnificent. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. By the way, if you're still looking for Christmas gifts, check out our lovely sponsor, Nomad, who makes rugged and luxurious accessories for all of your gadgets. Their handcrafted leather goods and cases will make you look fancy and smart, even if you're really not. Go to hellonomad.com BGS for 15% off. And don't forget to put BGS in the discount code. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail.